Good morning to everyone. Um, the, the message, the title of the message for this morning is A New and Better Cleansing, Jesus at Cana. Uh, and that's from John chapter 2. Uh, well, the kingdom. Let's speak about the kingdom first. The kingdom of God. The kingdom is all about the grace of God in Jesus Christ purifying sinners so they may be presented holy and without blemish before the bridegroom's father at the eternal wedding feast. And in this way, God is glorified. In what way? By the purification of sinners. Dirty, filthy sinners, purified, cleansed, now able to praise God forever and ever as holy. And God is glorified through the fallen creation in this way. And the wedding feast are going to be a bunch of undesirables who have been justified by faith, purified. So now the cleansing work of Jesus, and this is um, key to the gospel, the cleansing work, Jesus came to cleanse, to purify. Purify means to clean. If you have impure water, you get a purifier, it filters through and it comes out clean, pure, so you can drink it. So the cleansing work of Jesus in preparation for the kingdom is the major theme of chapters 2 to 4 of the Gospel of John. And really, it resounds throughout the entire book. Just think of all the times that John in his gospel speaks about the Spirit and the water, for example. Water is a theme. Water. What does water do? It cleanses. The Spirit. What Spirit? The Holy Spirit. So John is always speaking about purification throughout the gospel. But when Jesus comes, He comes with a radical I don't want to say completely new, but a radical level of purification. And in, in the passage that we're going to look at today, or at least in the second half of chapter 2, this radical purification is portrayed in a very dramatic way. And you'll remember where Jesus enters into the temple, sees all the money changers, the temple has been defiled, and so he comes and he cleanses it. How does he cleanse it? Well, you know, he doesn't take a dust rag and start cleaning. He starts overturning the table, the money changes and stuff. And people say, oh, you see, Jesus got angry too. Well, the house of his father was defiled. Of course he was angry. He purified that house. And he purified it in no uncertain terms. And he wasn't embarrassed. He said, oh, uh, maybe I did a, had a bad testimony in doing that. He purified that temple because he was highly offended for the honor of his father. And by overturning the tables, by purifying the temple, Jesus is basically saying that the, the, the Jewish purification of the temple was insufficient, had been corrupted, and needed to be completely overhauled. That's what Jesus said, basically, with his actions. So the general lack of awareness concerning this greater purification is also seen at the beginning of the third chapter of John where Jesus schools Nicodemus 
on the necessity of an altogether new, purifying rebirth if he's to have anything at all to do with God's kingdom. See, nobody can enter God's kingdom if they haven't been purified. And purification comes from God. And Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of what? Water and the Spirit. What does that speak to? Purification. Unless one is cleansed, unless one is purified, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Rebirth, being born again, is being purified by God unto a new life, a new existence. That's what being born again, uh, being born again comes down to. So at the end of chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, the radicalness of Christ's cleansing in view of the kingdom is once again brought to the forefront in the sense, in the scene where, you remember this too perhaps, where the, John the Baptist's disciples find themselves at odds with Jesus' followers over an argument, over a certain point, over the significance of ceremonial washing. So we're still in that area of purification, right? Ceremonial washing. John the Baptist and his dis John, the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus are having an argument, a theological dispute. Well, the Baptist proceeds to instruct his disciples that he's merely the friend of the bridegroom, the one who would eventually purify for, for good. He's only the friend of the bridegroom. The bridegroom's way of cleansing for fitness in the kingdom must ascend, whereas his way, remember John, where did he baptize? In water. And now John is saying, no, the bridegroom, I'm only the friend. The bridegroom, the one who comes after me, is greater than me. He will purify with, with the Spirit and with fire. So his purification, his baptism, is greater than John's. And John says, in this context, I must descend, or I must, well, what's the word? Uh, decrease. decrease. <laughs> I must decrease. And the one who comes after me must increase. To say what? His way, what he's going to do, is far superior to what I've been doing, baptizing you only in the water for the repentance of sins. So the gospel message, boiled down to its bare bones, really is the grace of God in Jesus Christ purifying sinners, cleansing sinners, giving us a shower, and we coming out sparkling clean. Why? So that we might be presented without spot or wrinkle at the eternal wedding feast in the kingdom. Do we want to present ourselves at the wedding feast with dirty rags? No, we won't even be let in. We have to be cleansed. We have to be purified. And that's what John the Baptist says. Jesus is going to... My purification is, is like this. But he's going to purify you once and for all for good. And you'll be fit for the kingdom. And before that, you're not fit. You have to be born again. If you're not be born again... If you're not born again, you can't enter the kingdom. Why? Because you're filthy. You've got filthy rags. Of course, most people don't want to hear that. But if 
That's what God says. That's what we should want to hear. Because he's the one who makes all the big decisions in the end, isn't he? So what does it matter what I think in the end? What does it matter what everyone else thinks? If I'm looking towards eternity. If I'm foolish enough to only look at this life, if I for some reason think that my 80, maybe 80, 90, maybe 100 years, if I know I'm going to die eventually, if I think that if I'm living for this, well, then I know what my end is going to be. But if God comes and reveals himself to me and says, look, there's something more, and I'm not a fool, but I'm wise, and I'm willing to listen, well, then I'm going to listen to the creator and sustainer of all things. Why should I listen to myself? Who am I? What can I do to save myself? So, the gospel is the grace of God in Jesus Christ purifying sinners so that we can be presented clean at the wedding feast and we can get in and fully enjoy it. God wants us to enjoy existence. Now, it's, sometimes we enjoy it, sometimes we don't. I'll just say this quickly. Um, I had to go to the, we're down at the shore at the CMML, we're staying there. And we had to go to the emergency room for something in the hospital. And, you know, you, you come out of the Jersey Shore, everyone's, you know, surfboards and, you know, mini California and people tanned and, and, and eating ice cream. And it looks, wow, this is paradise. You go into the emergency room. We were there for 10 hours, but go to the emergency room for 10 hours. You'll see that right behind this thin veil of joy and happiness is living hell. People screaming. Excruciating pain. Nurse, nurse, I'm in excruciating pain. Vomiting. People trying to get out. The police come and trying to get someone. Right behind that thin veil of great summer enjoyment. And that's what, that's what this reality is like. There's a thin veil of enjoyment, but beneath it there's living hell. And then at the end of it there's death. We need something. We need to be purified. Even the philosophers who aren't believers, they come to that conclusion. The existentialist philosophers, they say, you know, death is really what's controlling all of human, human thought because we all know it's going to happen. And so Jesus comes to purify us so that we can fully enjoy the wedding feast and in this way, as purified sinners enjoying creation, God's new creation, enjoying it, we glorify God. All the rest of creation looks at us and says, wow, God is great. Look what he could do. Isn't it just silly to refuse it all? So this is what we're, we're introduced to in the town of Cana, in the uplands west of the Sea of Galilee in Israel. In fact, it's in Cana where Jesus performs the first of his signs that would distinguish him as the divine purifying Messiah sent from heaven in order to usher in the peace and plenty of the kingdom of God. This is the first sign. And the sign is to do that, to demonstrate that God is at work in Jesus Christ to save men. Appropriately, Jesus chooses to do this first of his signs 
at where? A wedding feast. Where, however, however, something had gone terribly wrong. And so let's read together John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, Mary. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. You know how mothers can be, right? So proud of their children. Um, now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of what? Not for drinking, but for purification rites, okay? Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, Jesus turned the water into wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Oh, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, if you remember, Cana was also the home of Nathaniel, the disciple, the soon-to-be disciple, at least in the beginning of John, who was sitting under a fig tree a day or so before, had, seen, had been seen by Jesus from a distance. Okay, this is the end of John chapter 1. So he was sitting under a fig tree. The fig tree was a Jewish symbol for peace and prosperity in the kingdom. So unable to let this emblematic moment go to waste and knowing what was in the hearts of men, Jesus revealed to Nathanael sitting under the fig tree, the fig tree that represents peace and prosperity in the kingdom, and he reveals to him things about himself that only God could know. That only God could know from mere observation observation he saw him at a distance and he knew these things so astounded nathaniel confesses that jesus the rabbi from that no good town of nazareth because he had just say, said what good can ever come out of that place nazareth that no good town of nazareth this rabbi is the son of god the king of israel john 1 47 51 and without missing a beat jesus replies you think this was special? What? That was pocket change. That was nothing. A mere opening act for the marvels to come. Before I'm through, I'm paraphrasing, of course. Jesus says, before I'm through, you're going to see firsthand that I purify men from heaven so that all who believe can enjoy the kingdom with perfect joy and enter into prosperity and peace of the kingdom. So, back to the wedding. On the surface, the passage about Jesus at Cana is about bad wedding planning and last-minute fixes. 
In its depths, however, it speaks about the overflowing grace of God and of His eternal plan to transform our ruined lives into a never-ending celebration of God with a clear conscience. So back in Jesus' day, a wedding would last up to a week. So it was a big deal. Just imagine planning a, a week-long par party. Probably the most important event in a man and woman's life. So to have it ruined would be the worst kind of social embarrassment and a humiliation that would shadow them the rest of their lives. Oh, look, you, you know who those guys are. Remember that wedding? We, we took off a week from work to go to that wedding. It was terrible. So it should have been a time of joy and festivity, but was ruined by human inefficiency and feebleness. Bad planning. It pointed, in fact, to the human condition, which should have been a continuous celebration of God's goodness, but as we know in the story of Genesis, it succumbed to the weakness of our natural flesh, the temptation of the devil, and we fell into sin and out of peace and prosperity and into the wild, out of the garden, into the desert. So now we might not see the greatness, how big this tragedy was at Cana, because simply put, we're so used to failure. Sin, suffering, and disappointment are the norms of our human situation. Such that, if you think about it, we've learned to evaluate our lives on a scale of bad to mediocre in, in reality, right? <laughs> this is, mediocre is the new great from Adam on. That's what, we, that's what we aim for. Because we all know that even if things are going great, there's something just around the corner. Since Adam, the high end of mediocrity has become the new excellence. And this is why on those rare occasions when some plan or desire or dream is, seems to be perfectly fulfilled, we're beyond astounded. And we can't, we can't uh, imagine how lucky we are that the, all things are going right. And as we gain experience in life, however, we begin to rate our happiness more and more also in... Uh, in comparison to the failure of others. Think about it. You know, how often we say things like, um, oh, well, at least I'm not as bad off as that guy. Is that a way to rate happiness? I'm not as bad off as the next guy? Huh? Or we live in jealousy because the next guy is better off than we are. But if we were to go enter into his head, he'd be saying, why aren't I better off than this other guy? And that's how we live our life, trying to evaluate our happiness. Even more indicative of this condition, this human condition, is the sentiment that when all else goes wrong, think about it, and I say it all the time, but when all else goes wrong, if you're healthy, you say, at least I have my health. Knowing full well that that health is only relative to time or to uh, accidents or, or whatever. To the DNA. It's relative. Well, at least I have my health. 
now, but in the end, I'm going to take the path that everyone else takes. I'm going to die. So what's, what's solid? What's, what's firm in that? What's lasting in that thought? Averageness is our excellence. Now, the wedding at Cana should have been the most wonderful day for the bride and bridegroom, as well as for their guests. But then they ran out of drinks. Oh, man. The wine was finished. Perhaps they were only halfway through the feast. We don't know from the text. Well, what would they do? Let's say they were halfway through the feast. What would they do for the next three and a half days, right? A wedding could last up to a week. What are you going to do with the guests for the next three and a half? You ever try, you have guests and you realize maybe you didn't make enough food or something? That's for an evening. How about three days? Oh, it's a disaster. There was the distinct possibility that the wine shortage would result also in financial loss for the soon-to-be newlyweds. Because in that day, in that time, the provision for the full festivities of a wedding was a legal obligation. People were taken off a week. They were coming from all over. You were obliged to provide for them if they were at the wedding. So there would be social embarrassment and there, the possible financial loss because maybe some of those gifts that they were going to give you, they say, I'm not giving you because now we got to return home and go to work or something because we, we're not provided for, something to that effect. So making matters even worse, running out of wine would have been a social disaster in a shame-based culture such as Israel's, ancient Israel's was. Shame-based. You know what that means? That means uh, everything is, is uh, evaluated according to whether you succeed or not. And if you don't succeed, you're shamed. Some cultures today, like in the, in the Far East, are still shame-based. Today in the West, we kind of got it completely away from it, probably too far away from it. Right. In any case, the knowledge of the wine running out had come to the attention of Jesus' mother. Knowing that her son was special, she turned to him to solve the problem. And Jesus' reply must have startled her. Woman, what are you saying to me? Now, a lot is said of calling Jesus, calling his mother, woman. But it wasn't at all, at the time, a disrespectful term for addressing woman. It, today, it would be something like miss. Hmm? Miss. So that's not disrespectful at all. Jesus wasn't being disrespectful. Yet, the question remains, why on earth would Jesus refer to his own mother in this way as miss? But now we've got to think through this thing. Since his baptism, everything had changed for Jesus. The relationships that had once bound him had to now take a back seat to the one relation that mattered above all others. Jesus no longer belonged to his mother. He was now completely the Father's Son, the Son of Man, sent to save this disaster. Mary must no longer presume upon Jesus. That was the Father's prerogative alone. And that's how Jesus was seeing things. What did he say? My food 
is what? My meat is to do the will of my Father. That's why I'm here. That's why I live. That's why I exist. But Jesus' reaction was also justifiable from another perspective, related. Because he himself points out right after, he says, woman, what what does this have to do with me? He points out that his time had not yet come. What does that mean? Well, throughout the Gospel of John, the hour, my hour had not yet come. Hour, throughout the Gospel of John, is used to refer to his passion week, his suffering before the cross and unto the cross, his own personal great tribulation. So for the hours leading up to the cross, in fact, they would be filled with the worst kind of human suffering. A combination of intense physical, psychological, social, and spiritual agonies. You'd be mocked, spit on, slapped in the face, stripped naked, beaten, and interrogated. And finally, unjustly accused. Not only by the officials, who had always despised him anyway, but by all those that he had been ministering to, healing, feeding. They would turn on him, and they would yell along with the the religious leaders, crucify him, crucify him. And then his own disciples would abandon him when he was struck. The shepherd was struck. The sheep scattered. After that, they would load the cross beam on his back, on his back full of welts and bruises from the whippings, this instrument of his own execution. He had to carry it to the place of his execution would have weighed somewhere around 100 pounds and he would have had to carry it across town to Golgotha, the place of the skull, outside the city walls. Then when he arrived there, the Roman soldiers would drive spikes through his hands and feet, lift him up in shame, in the shame of his nakedness before all his haters and hanging there lifeless, from the physical abuses his body had taken, his own loving father would turn his face away from him for a a short time, pouring onto him the totality of his holy wrath, which was, should have been directed, should have come upon us. And he took it all. And there, broken in body and spirit, the only man who didn't deserve God's wrath would take it all to the very last drop of his blood and the breath of his spirit, abandoned now again, not only by his disciples, not only by the people he ministered to, not by, only by his own people and his own creation, but for a time by his Father as well. Woman, he says in chapter 2, verse 4, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Yet from the moment he had come up from the baptismal waters, the clock started ticking on that hour. And he knew it. So why the hesitation to help out the bridegroom at first? I think what we're seeing here, what we see going on here, uh, where where Jesus' first pangs of anxiety over what he knew would happen at the end of the hour. And we'd see it again in the garden a hundredfold in Gethsemane where the burden of the cross was so crushing to him 
that he, as he sweat, it was as if beads of blood were coming out of him. So, so intense was his agony and his anxiety about going to the cross. But there he said, not my will, but yours. He took it. He went through. He persevered. Now at the wedding, Jesus would do his first sign. The sign that would start him off officially on the public path leading directly to the cross. It would initiate his tortuous mission of purifying a sinful and putrid people. We don't like to speak about ourselves like that, but that's the divine revelation. And by starting his first sign, I think, Jesus said, my time has not yet come. He knew that by starting off with his first sign, he'd be right on the road to the cross. And let's not think that Jesus, because he was God, didn't worry, didn't, wasn't anxious over the cross. We know he was from the garden experience. In his, in his full humanity, he... <laughs> If this cup can pass for me, Father, let it pass. If, if I could do your will in any other way, if I could avoid, do your will avoiding the cross, show me that way. That's basically what I think he's saying there. And the Father said, that's the only way. And Jesus said, okay, not my will but yours. And so here Jesus, performing the, about to perform the first of his signs, puts himself squarely on the road to the cross. So Jesus hesitated. Uh, but in the end, he came around. His true nature took over. Because Jesus was a born Savior. And he can't help but save. And so when his instincts kicked in, so to speak, he set out to save the bridegroom from shame and loss. Jesus saves. He can't help but save. That's what he does. He was sent to save. He's a Savior. And he saves in the big way, the eternal way, but he's ready to save us from all different types of trials and tribulations. Why? Because that's his nature. He's a savior. Now, notice how Jesus decided to solve the problem of the ruined feast. And it has a lot of theological implications. He tells the servants, what? To fill six stone jars with water. Okay. As we saw in the text, these jars weren't intended for drinking water, but were used to hold, rather, the water for ceremonial washing. It was water that people would wash before entering the temple or giving a sacrifice, whatever. Okay, It was ceremonial washing. Um, they were used, therefore, so that people could wash themselves on the outside. It was a picture pointing to a greater purification. But from the start, such cleansing like I just said, was meant to be uh, a mere picture of a greater spiritual purification to come, to be accomplished through water, the Spirit, and fire. You know, sometimes we forget that baptism is a purification, right? When, we're, when we believe and we're born again, we're baptized into the body. We're baptized into Christ's purification. That's what baptism comes down to. We add lots of other things to it, but that's the essence of it. And so using a purification prop, let's say, Jesus reveals his true nature and mission as the one who baptizes, cleanses, how? 
not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. And so th this, this first sign is pointing to that. It's a sign, right? A sign, what does a sign do? It indicates, it points. So killing two birds with one stones, one stone, <laughs> one stone, okay. Jesus saves the local wedding and at the same time indicates how he would save the world by taking what was a superficial and temporary way of cleansing us, temporary way of cleansing us from our sin, and transforming it into an infinitely profound, eternal purification. So by turning the water into wine, he would wash away the immediate shame of the bridegroom, because he'd have all the, the weight on his shoulders. Right? He's the guilty one, the bridegroom. He'd wash away the immediate shame of the bridegroom and thereby save the wedding. You see, salvation, without purification, there is no salvation. By spilling his blood on the cross three years later, whatever, he would purify us once for all before the holy God that we might enter into kingdom rest, overflowing with joy, made complete by his suffering and shame. So you see, he, the water turned into wine, saved the wedding, saved the, the bridegroom from shame, allowed the wedding feast to go on. His death on the cross purified us so that we could enter into the kingdom, to this eternal feast with the Lamb of God. So how great a salvation would this be? Well, when the head of the feast, going back to the, the wedding, when the head of the feast the headmaster, whatever, tasted the wine. He didn't know where he'd come from, but only that it was altogether excellent. So calling uh, the bridegroom, he's not even overly fixed on the wedding being saved, but on how delicious the new wine was and how the bridegroom had saved the best for last. Contrary to the normal practice at weddings. Because typically, the best wine would be served first to give a good impression. And then when everyone started bending the elbow, after a while, take out the bad wine. They won't notice it anyway. And we can save some money in the process. That's, that was the logic. Bring out the cheaper stuff now. But not so with God's salvation. God doesn't save that way. First came the perishable, the temporary the superficial purification, right? Water, the baptism in, 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 in Jordan, right? The purification rites. These were temporary. These weren't the most excellent purifications. The best wine was saved for last when Jesus came, when he came to purify with imperishable water eternally, a true cleansing. The wedding guests were to taste the second wine and recognize that it was superior to the first. And in this way, they were to give themselves wholly over to it with gladness and joy. But would they? Well, let's, let's go back. Um, I'm counting that you, you know more or less the, the scene where Jesus cleanses the temple. Let's go back there a second. The cleansing of the temple that followed the wedding it's significant in itself, the order of things. The cleansing of the temple that followed the wedding at Cana in John's account was the actual beginning 
of the changing of the ceremonious water, ceremonial water, into the excellent saving wine. Jesus had to show the people that this purification that you're practicing is insufficient and is even corrupted. This will not save you. It is not enough. God instituted it for didactic reasons, for teaching us, for showing us, for pointing us to something greater that would come. But now Jesus comes, he overturns the table, and what's he saying? This system is gone now. The new, all that this was pointing to, apart from the fact that you've corrupted it, but even the real authentic purification rites, they were all pointing towards this greater purification. So this has to be overturned for a number of reasons. The Jews at the temple didn't like Jesus' presumption when he scolded the money changers, so they demanded that he give them a sign showing his authority to upset the normal temple practices. Who are you to do this? They didn't like it at all. Now, they may or may not have heard of the sign at Cana a few days earlier. In any case, they weren't convinced. Jesus' authority upset the normal temple practices, the normal beliefs. So Jesus gave them another sign, but they'd have to wait for it. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it again. So the Jews were incredulous because they couldn't see beyond the physical temple in which they were standing. They hadn't yet been born again to see with spiritual eyes. Forty-six years, they say, they said, the leaders said. Forty-six years it took to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days. Don't take us for fools. But Jesus had been talking about the temple of his body, which after having been given over in order to bear the impurity and the sins of all of us, would be raised from the dead three days later to eternal life. And this great and glorious event, the resurrection, would confirm to all creation that the cross was effective, that the promised Messiah of Israel was Jesus, and that on the cross he had won the victory over sin and death, as we heard this morning. And in this way, his resurrection would fling open wide the doors of the kingdom for all who believed on him, who looked to him lifted up on the cross in order to be purified by the cleansing of the new birth, of the new wine that he brought. And in this way, and in this way alone, could they be made fit for the eternal wedding feast in the kingdom in the eternal kingdom. And only in this way could they glorify God. You know, for all our sins, all our failures as Christians, we're still glorifying God because we're examples, we're, we're the fruit of Jesus' passion, His work. Even if we're, we fail in lots of things, we're still glorifying God because look at us, we've been purified. Not on our own merit, not because we've done something, but because he purified us. And he said, look, you could try and follow the law, but you're not, that's not going to get you to where you want to go. I'll do it for you. You just believe in me. Trust me. Put, your, put all the eggs, all your eggs in this basket. Me. Huh? 
I won't disappoint. The wise and intelligent refused Jesus' purification because their hearts were set on the things of this world. And it's always that. Yeah, I want to be clean before God. I'm going to follow my own path. I'm not going to give up the world to do it. Jesus says, unless you pick up your cross and follow me, deny yourself. You can't, you're not fit to be my disciple. But the little children, though, that is those people whose hearts are filled with wonder and desire to know the true heavenly realities, they embraced. They embraced it. Indeed, after Jesus had performed the first of his signs, the turning of the water into excellent wine, we read at the end of the Cana episode, and his disciples believed in him. You see, people who say, I've never had a sign, therefore I'm not going to believe, are really saying, I don't want to look to the signs that you've given because I don't want to believe. I want to trust myself. I want to purify myself. I can do it. So, to conclude, if you're here today, there's a good chance you've also believed what you've read in the Bible about Jesus. But as we learn from Nicodemus in, the, in chapter 3 of John, that one can come to Jesus believing he is from God, believing in his teaching, and believing in his miracles, yet still remain in the darkness. This is the kind of faith that many who call themselves Christians have, but it's not the faith that purifies. We need to come to Jesus not at night, like Nicodemus, but rather in the fullness of the noonday sun, hiding nothing from the Lord, keeping nothing back of ourselves. Nothing. Right? Isn't that what conversion really came down to? You recognized Christ's excellence, and you said, I'm not going to hold anything back. Here's my life. You hold one thing back, you're holding something back. You haven't given your life to Jesus yet. As he gave all of himself for us to save us, we're to give our whole life to him in faith and be saved. That is to be washed pure and made fit for the kingdom. And when Paul says, give your life upon the altar, a living sacrifice, he's just saying, you know, follow up with this, with, this, um, uh, with this action of giving your whole, don't only in word, but in deed. Put your body on the altar. Sacrifice it up to God. That is your worship. That is your reasonable worship. And live that way. Worship isn't just coming on Sunday and singing good songs. It's your life offered up to Christ. That's worship. So Jesus' disciples believed not only because Jesus had performed a miracle, but because through his miracle, they recognized his glory. And at this point, they had not yet, probably, I don't think they were yet born again, because they still didn't have, they still weren't looking at things from Jesus' perspective. You remember in the Gospels? They, they were always, you know, Jesus was saying to Peter, you know, you still have the things of men in mind. 
when you're telling me don't go to the cross. You, you still haven't understood. I don't think they were born again yet. Their eyes weren't opened. We see that the disciples on the road to Emmaus, their eyes were opened. They understood. The disciples up until then seemed to me at least to have been, you know, not fully understanding. In any case, they were well on their way for they believed that if ever there was a man who could purify them from the stain of their sins and provide an eternal wedding feast, it would be this man, Jesus of Nazareth, the one the Baptist had called the Lamb of God. Now the question for us today is, first, have you been washed from your sins? That's the first question. Because if you haven't been washed from your sins, the Bible is basically that all the instructions on how to live for the Bible is useless to you because it's bound to just become an ethical system of life like any other ethics. If you're not born again, if you haven't been purified, because you're still in your sins. But if you've believed in the name of Jesus, then the instructions of Scripture become precious. They become the way of life for you. So the first question to ask is, have I been washed have I been purified or am I still in my sins? And if you haven't yet been washed by the blood of Christ, then come to the water jars and take that first saving drink and let the Holy Spirit wash away your stain through the work of Jesus. If, on the other hand, you have already drunk from the water made wine, then there's another question for you. How often... Have you gone back to that jar to drink? How often do you go back to it? Not in order to be saved, but in order to refresh yourself and remember how excellent it really is. And really, isn't that the point of the, the bread and the wine? Isn't that the point? To refresh ourselves? To remember? Not just remember, you know, I don't think anybody forgets during the week that Jesus died for their sins. It's not just to remember. It's to remember to refresh to be refreshed. God is a living God. He has to do with our real life, not just with our theological thoughts. We need refreshing daily in reality. The, the Lord's Supper is something we should take with us in our hearts throughout the week to be refreshed, to go back to the cross, go back to the empty tomb, go back to the wedding feast and drink that, the, that new, more excellent wine it's excellent, full-bodied, balanced, beautiful taste. I'm talking like this because I'm from Italy. But <laughs> and, you, and, and, you know, I don't want to offend anyone, but you can tell after a while, good wine from a bad wine. It's a, a whole different thing. 